Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Children of the 80s are back with another review of one of our childhood favorites. I'm Patrick. I'm Bobby. G'day, I'm Shane. And this week we're reviewing 1982's 48 Hours with Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. But before we get into our review of this classic 80s film, first a word from our sponsor. This podcast sponsors Torchies, the deep southern family-friendly watering hole atmosphere you'd love to see with down-home hospitality that'd make an old Dixie proud. The hell you say? It's Romans. Romans ain't for shit. Romans is live entertainment, real liquor, and most of all, style. Torchies has class. Oh yeah? Yeah! Which side of the street you come from, we got a place for you. Torchies. And Romans. Hey, Jack, quit using that car door so much. Torchies and Romans. When you only have 48 hours to spend, why not spend it with friends and ex-convicts? <laughs> what was the thing about racial stereotypes that you didn't want to go into? <laughs> boy, this this movie. Ooh. Oh, boy, yeah. Ooh, that's definitely something I want to talk about. But all right. I got the summary for this film. What could go wrong if you place the most dangerous convicts into the community at large and provide them with tools that can double as potential we weapons to kill their guards? Well, when full-time killer and part-time criminal Albert Gantz works roadside on a chain gang in California, he takes the opportunity to use his hoe to split a few heads open and then escape with his faithful Native American companion, Billy Bear, at his side quicker than you can say hi-ho silver away. A few days later, the murderous pair arrive in San Francisco, drop in on an old friend, and kill him. Fresh off the heels of that murder, our boy set out to kill sometime, taking in the sights of the Golden City. And by sights, I mean hookers. And not the Julia Roberts pretty woman type of hookers, more like the kind that cause you to go buy an I Got Crabs in San Francisco t-shirt, even though you didn't eat seafood. Anyways, while Gantz and Billy are sightseeing, the duo is interrupted by two San Francisco police detectives who are running down a lead on some stolen credit cards. Gantz and Billy shoot the detectives and then try to flee their hotel. But our hero of the film, Inspector Jack Cates, played by the gravelly-voiced Nick Nolte, stops them. Jack disarms Gantz but gets stuck in a Mexican standoff with Billy when Billy gets the drop on the surviving detective. This forces Jack to surrender his gun. Gantz kills the other de detective, but Jack escapes unharmed. Now, Jack is pissed, but defenseless because Gantz took his gun. Once back at the station, Jack gets a new, less impressive gun and learns Gantz and Billy used to work with a prisoner named Reggie Hammond. Hammond is still serving his sentence in a conveniently nearby prison, so Jack heads out to squeeze Reggie for information. And although Reggie will sing the police, he will not sing for the police, and he won't give up anything unless Jack gets him out of the prison. So Jack checks Reggie out of prison for 48 hours like a library book. Once out, Reggie takes Jack to the apartment of a gang member named Luther, 
Earlier in the film, Gantz and Billy kidnap Luther's girlfriend, and they are now holding her until Luther brings Gantz the money. After Luther fails to both shoot Jack and hurdle Reggie's car door, Luther is taken back to the police station where he refuses to give up any information either. Reggie then leads Jack to Torchy's, a redneck bar straight out of a rock and roll fable. Reggie plays a cop and successfully shakes down the entire bar to get information about Billy's girlfriend, who lives down the street. This also leads nowhere, since the girlfriend says that she sent Billy packing on the Trail of Tears and hasn't seen him in weeks. Frustrated, Jack and Reggie begin beating the shit out of each other, because that's what a productive investigator does. Finally, Reggie confesses to Jack that the... reason that Gantz is back in San Francisco is because he's looking for $500,000 that the gang stole from a drug dealer years ago before Reggie and Gantz went to prison. Reggie reveals that the money is hidden in Reggie's car, which has been stored in a downtown parking garage for the last few years. Jack and Reggie go and stake out the garage and wait to see who shows up. Luther, the man who just shot at a cop the day before, shows up and collects the car. Luther takes the money to a train station where Jack, Billy, and Gantz exchange gunfire. As Billy and Gantz escape, a cop detains Jack, not knowing that Jack is a detective. Luther flees on foot, and Reggie follows in pursuit. Back at the police station, Jack's sergeant berates him for not only losing the suspects, but also the convict he checked out of prison. However, Jack is elated when Reggie calls him to tell him that he followed Luther to a seedy hotel and is waiting for Jack to come down to the Fillmore district. Jack meets Reggie at the downtown dance club. When Luther unexpectedly leaves the hotel in the middle of the night, the duo tails him to a city bus. Billy and Gantz control the bus, and they immediately shoot Luther and take the money. They engage in a rolling gunfight with Reggie and Jack, who are driven off the road into a storefront building. The pair return empty-handed to the police station, where they are now both berated by Jack's boss. Resigned to the fact that they have lost Gantz and Billy, Jack starts to head back to the prison to put Reggie into the drop slot. They stop off for a quick drink, and Jack wonders if Billy might go back to see his girl one last time before leaving town. Rather than going back to prison, Reggie suggests that they check it out. Once they are there, they both find Billy and Gantz at the girlfriend's apartment. Reggie shoots and kills Billy because that Indian just doesn't understand that you can't bring a knife to fight with Predators or Eddie Murphy. (laughs) Jack chases Gantz through the smoky alleyways of Chinatown while Reggie tries to catch up. Eventually, Gantz gets Reggie at gunpoint and uses him as a human shield. Jack doesn't hesitate and shoots Gantz regardless, narrowly missing Reggie. The film ends with Jack putting the money back into Reggie's car, telling him that it will be there waiting for him when he gets out in six months. Jack also reminds Reggie that if he ever steps out of line again, that he will catch him, which Eddie Murphy responds to with his trademark Eddie Murphy laugh and a vow to only make crappy family movies once he's released. And that is 48 Hours. <laughs> spoiler alert or no spoiler alert? Uh, we always spoilers. All right. 48 Hours, released on December 10th, 1982, a Christmas present for the world. Uh, the, released on the same day as Airplane 2, the sequel. The Toy, Gandhi, Sophie's Choice, and the same month as Kiss Me Goodbye, Tootsie, Honky Tonk Man, Best Friends, The Dark Crystal, and Bobby's favorite film, Trail of the Pink Panther, The Godfather 3 of that film oh series. <laughs> Gross. But 82 is a good year. I mean, uh, I saw Kiss I Me Goodbye in the theater, so... Uh, 
wasn't all that good. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm more thinking of the Beastmaster or Cat. Oh yes, or oh, Blade yeah. Runner. You know, it was a really talking. good year. Yeah. yeah. That we on a previous podcast we talked about how June of nineteen eighty two could arguably considered to be one of the best months for movies ever. But that's a separate podcast. Go look for that one. All right. <laughs> it grossed over seventy eight million dollars at the box office, was the seventh highest grossing film of nineteen eighty two, right behind Rocky Three, Porky's, and Star Trek Two, The Wrath of Khan, and right in front of Poltergeist, the best little whorehouse in Texas, and Annie. Nominated for one Golden Globe, a new star of the year, motion picture male, obviously Eddie Murphy, who lost to Ben Kingsley for Gandhi, the female win- winner for that category that year. Anybody have any guests? Sally Field. For a female newcomer? Oh, newcomer. I'm sorry. Newcomer, 82. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Grease 2. Ooh, that would have been a better pick. Sandel Bergman for Conan the Barbarian. Wow. <laughs> I would never get that. Oh, no, no. I, I was amazed when I saw that. Was nominated on AFI's list of top 100 films, uh, fun, or sorry, top 100 funniest American films, but ultimately did not make the list. Uh, was followed by a sequel in 1990, another 48 hours. In 2017, uh, it was announced that a remake, remake of the film was in development. However, it has not progressed much since then. And of course, Shane's favorite category, Rotten Tomatoes, has it at 93% critics and 69% audience. So that's the numbers on 48 Hours. All right, gentlemen. Did we see 48 Hours when we were a kid? I, I know I saw it. I saw it on video. Didn't see it in the theater. Uh, but I saw it many times on video because I re uh, my, my parents liked it and I really liked it. And I think eventually we it was one of the first VHS tapes we bought. Bobby, uh, did you see it in the theater? I did. My brother took me to it, actually. I was 17, and in Oregon, you had to be 18 to see an R-rated movie without an adult. So I had to have an adult take me, and my my little brother just happened to be the nice guy. And yeah, I thought it was fantastic then. I it, it was it was definitely a you didn't you'd never seen Eddie Murphy before, so he was a spark that you had you hadn't seen on screen before. So yeah, completely different uh, than on video. I was too young to see it at the theatre. I do remember the poster, though, because I just remember he had his middle finger up, Eddie Murphy. And I always remember... On the poster? Yeah. Well, there is a... It's not on my DVD cover, but there was a big poster, and you'd probably see it online, of Eddie Murphy with his finger up towards the camera, and he's, like, handcuffed to Nick Nolte, and it said, like, 48 hours. Yeah, I'd not seen it at the theatre. Not not old enough, but I know I'd seen it on VHS. I don't remember when. I'm not sure I documented it when exactly. But at, it was one of a handful of movies that I recorded, like pretty much the entire movie on audio cassette and then listened to it on playback all the time. I just Because it was when I was watching it again for the podcast, I remembering, because it's been a while, I remembering the things that it said and the music. Yeah, Eddie Murphy to me was everything, but I would have seen Trading Places and Beverly Hills Cop probably before this one. All right. As Shane said uh, that picture, the poster of the, his middle finger up. I just looked up 48 Hours movie poster. That it's is his not, index fingers. Yeah, it, it's – well, no, that the U.S. version is him with handcuffs on his finger yeah. with a cigar in his mouth. But if you look it up, there's another uh, – this is probably the international version that's more of like an animated image. 
and his yeah. Finger, yeah <laughs> that's he's got his finger up it's no kidding yeah they're handcuffed together and so it's yeah it's <laughs> yeah and i i've got like a couple of big coffee table books of movie posters and it's in there the original one that i know of wow. um with his middle 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 finger up giving the bird <laughs> Yeah, interesting. I was like, I don't think that was his middle finger up, but I, no, I looked it that's up. what I was saying. Same poster. I'm like, no, that's not. It was an R rated. Yeah, it was an R rated film down under, and all R rated movies here are classified as restricted to 18 years or or, or over. So, okay. so you recorded it from beginning to end on audio recording. Yeah, I must have. Like I did that with The Breakfast Club. I did it with Blade Runner. You know, I did it with a few movies, and I just play them to myself at home in my bedroom and that when I was a kid or that's how obsessed with movies I was. Oh, I, I thought maybe it's because you liked all the racist humor. In the, no, you know, just, no, no, no. I, I wouldn't have even picked up on that back then. Like some of the words that he came out with and that, um, and, and the names that Nick Nolte was calling. Him, oh my God. I wouldn't have picked up on all that as a kid, but obviously this time uh, I was heavily, I was, my eyes were like getting bigger and bigger. Thinking, <laughs> did he just say watermelon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty full on. Yeah, yeah. I guess we could start there. Um, <laughs> I, I was. I have not seen this. I, I and I love this film. I really, really do love this film. I've owned it on VHS. I owned it on DVD, and now I own it on Blu-ray. And I have a digital version on my Vudu account as well. So I have it in four different formats. But I probably haven't watched it in over twenty years. Um, I just love to keep buying the movie. Apparently, and. I, you know, I, I I seem to remember some racist, you know, statements being made towards Eddie Murphy. I didn't remember it as as much, and it was it was bad. I mean, it was really really bad. And this is an early '80s film, and I was I was kind of taken back. I was because at first I was thinking maybe I could watch this with my son because it's it's I'm not I'm not as upset about violence and things like that language bothers me a little bit but the language was pretty harsh in this one and, and especially the racist language i'm like yeah i'm glad i wasn't watching this with him what did you think shane <laughs> obviously you thought it was pretty bad oh yeah yeah it was eye-opening but I, I i kind of expected as much because i i like uh nick nolte and i i had seen it again like maybe five years ago but I'd still sort of forgotten. So when uh, the impact this time, it, it was just ongoing too. And the best scene is Torchies. Like I just love that scene. <laughs> That's cla- that is classic Eddie Murphy. There's a, there's a lot of really good moments and scenes in this film, but Torchies is just the classic Eddie Murphy. And there's so much racism stuff in there as well. It's it's funny though. And I wasn't expecting it to be so harsh, but. Definitely would would not happen today in in a script. So I don't think. Yeah, it, this would not happen today. I, the same thing. I, now I've seen this thing uh, many times in between. You said twenty years, Patrick. I've seen it a couple times in between that twenty years, and I think I watched this maybe two years ago. I I, I like the the director, and I like this kind of a movie. Um, that's why Streets of Fire and uh, you know basically Walter Hill. It, his type of directing i like those kinds of movies it's still wow in your face language and uh and racism and i mean just look at the characters billy bear you know you've got uh the the black captain that is as racist as as the other guys i mean it's everybody is calling each other names it's it's 
not only in your face, it's today's stand by today's standards, this movie would not be made. Um, and if it would, it, they're, they're going to have to rewrite it completely. So yeah, it, this is very racist movie. I, and I agree with what Shane said though, is that the torchy scene and, and even Roman's, uh, you know, parts of that were, were, they were very funny. They were just obviously racist. You just, you kind of have to put your, your race card in the back of your mind and just kind of let it go because it was 1982 offensive for 1982, but still 1982. It's not today. Yeah. And there was a lot of police brutality Oh, (laughs) and and just stuff like that. And I remember as a kid saying trim as a code for sex, and I would have got it from this movie (laughs) when he started saying trim. I'm like, Oh, I remember that. Well, this is the, if, and, and I could be wrong, I believe this is the first Eddie Murphy movie we've reviewed for Lunchtime Movie Review, and this is the first Eddie Murphy movie as well, his film debut. Uh, what did you guys think of Eddie Murphy in this film? Well, when this movie had come out, it was either, no, I guess it was uh, right after Trading Places, there was a, a book that came out listing the top actors uh, and actresses of all time and they put them on a five-star rating or maybe it was, yeah it was five-star rating and they said there were only two perfect five-star ratings as of 1983 it was ben kingsley who had just won gandhi oscar and eddie murphy they were the two perfect number five actors of all time so of in the day that's what people thought of Eddie Murphy when this movie had come out and Trading Places right after. Those were the only two that they had to work with. I thought he was fantastic. He was perfectly cast. I thought he was just the perfect badass uh, chip on his shoulder. This is the stuff that we were talking about with Norbit uh, in the on our number two review where this is where Eddie Murphy is at his best. This is – his genius comes out. He's He's – funny he's articulate he's angry he's you know he's the the guy that he's being put down but he's gonna put it right back in your face just as hard and as harsh and as fast as as the guy that's throwing it at him so very well cast i thought he was perfect in the role and i believed his character through the whole thing i don't you know it's not a believable story that they would have done what they did but he he played it extremely well we won't i won't talk about the sequel but, but this part, at least in the original, he was fantastic. Well, according to my DVD, it was just into the 24th minute that we were introduced to Reggie Hammond in 48 Hours. And, I mean, he he's just in control just about the entire movie. And I was, I'm was i pretty much unaware of Saturday Night Live. As far as I know, it didn't screen in Australia at the time, back then. And I was too young to see it. So it was sort of trading places. And then Beverly Hills Cop really, really, uh, I loved and still do to this day. But it, I just loved Eddie Murphy. So when I saw 48 Hours, this guy is on fire. You know, I, I loved him. I, I just think he was so funny and quick and you look at him now and even as an adult he's sharp his comic timing is there his mannerisms just just stuff like he was obviously for his first movie it's pretty incredible not many actors can have a debut this good as and being a comedian as well you can do debuts in dramas and so forth and be pretty have an impact but this guy as a comedy he set the screen alight and perfect chemistry with Nick Nolte, which I know we'll get onto, but I love Eddie Murphy. 
Uh, you know, I liked all these movies, I think. Even Golden Child was spoken about that, Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Coming to America. It probably wasn't until Harlem Nights that he started to let me down and then it was ongoing from there. Well, uh, I did watch Saturday Night Live, so I was aware who Eddie Murphy was at that point in time when I first saw this. I mean, he was funny in it, but he wasn't as funny as he was on Saturday Night Live because he was there was a, a straightness to the character. I mean, he was there were stakes and there were shootouts and there was actual drama to actually act through as well. Uh, but I loved him in the role uh, and the similarity of the, the uh, kind of the uh, Beverly Hills Cop where he's it's comedy but there's also stakes and action and drama to act through is you know that without a doubt i think are some of his best roles in his entire career much as i i poked fun of the fact that he started playing it up for a lot of silly comedies or family comedies that had been going on for about the last 20 years with these very rare 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 moments where he uh, like dream girls where he actually acts where I think there's the talent of Eddie Murphy is I, I don't really enjoy Eddie Murphy comedies like I did in through most of the eighties and into the nineties. But uh, this is one of my, it probably, you know, I'll actually, I'll say it right now. I think this is my favorite Eddie Murphy movie. I really, yeah. really like this film. I yeah. like trading places. I like Beverly Hills cop, but I don't like them as much as this. And I, I think this is his, uh, best performance and and I think it's because it's is before he got comfortable being in a certain position and playing a certain type of role and you know he was kind of challenged in this um, apparently did not have a, a really fun experience on the set because the, he was treated pretty badly but um, you know it's uh, I, I think the what made it to the screen as Shane kind of said the chemistry he had with Nick Nolte which is really really good considering some of the material that was getting thrown at him in the film, I thought was uh, uh, pretty good. You know, Shane said he liked the chemistry. What did you think, Bobby? Of he and Nick? Yes. That was the best part of the movie. I mean, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying about Eddie Murphy, but I have to say the same thing about Nick Nolte in this role. I thought he was perfection. He had that gravelly voice. He had that put-upon, just street-worn cop that he he was going to he, – he was the lone wolf going to go out and take down the guy that took down his gun and took down all those that he was a cop killer. I mean, he was going to do it and he was going to do it fast and whatever it took and including to the point where he was being a racist jerk. Uh, I mean, as, as horrible as you can be to another human being, he was being that. And I thought that their chemistry as the movie progressed became the highlight of the whole movie. It, it, the, to me, the story wasn't nearly as much fun as as just watching these two amazing actors bounce off one another physically as well as verbally. I mean, it was just it was a it, it's a tour de force for these two actors. And I think I agree that I think this is my favorite Eddie Murphy role and having Nick play the way he does. I, I like Nick in a lot of things, but this is the one that I think is his standout performance as well in his career. Excellent for both of them. Shane, what about Nick Nolte? Oh, yeah, he's great. He's always been a bit of a favorite of mine, even in later years. Everything Bobby just said is spot on. He's, the chemistry here between these two can't fault it. 
and although it's a little bit questionable in the 1990 uh, sequel, but you were saying that you had trouble on set, Patrick. I'm surprised because it doesn't come through the performance. So that must mean also how confident Murphy was unless they did some editing. Well, it was the, the – I mean, he was an unknown quantity, and I don't believe the studio wanted him on the film. That the original intent for this film was to have Clint Eastwood and uh, Richard Pryor. And, you know, Nick Nolte was not the star power of Clint Eastwood and Eddie Murphy was a television actor and an extremely young television actor. So <clears throat> they were they were taking a risk and he made some comments about how that they were they were they were they didn't like uh, a lot of the dailies that they were seeing from him. And he never, I guess, felt comfortable on the set, you know, like he was secure that he had the yeah. job and uh you know uh, although i've never heard anything bad about him and nick nolte like they that they didn't get along or anything like that in fact uh, around the time that this was released nick nolte was scheduled to appear on saturday night live which eddie murphy was still on at that point and he actually did not appear because it was reported and i and i actually didn't research this so i don't know if this is actually even true or not because he got sick he got really ill so eddie murphy played host for the show here in the united states and actually came out for the opening they said you know and ladies and gentlemen nick nolte and eddie murphy came out and said <laughs> you know and you know said you know ladies and gentlemen nick nolte was supposed to be hosting tonight you know he's my co-star and friend from 48 hours and i went to pick him up at the airport and after he got off the the plane my friend nick nolte vomited all over my suit you know <laughs> and, and so he he can't go forward so i'm gonna play host tonight and so the episode essentially went hostless but the fact that he was coming on snl when he wouldn't have to do that uh and i've never heard of like bad blood between the two of them and they did come back and do a sequel um although eddie had to have top billing in it uh that you know that he had the star power that he didn't have to do a sequel to that at all if he didn't want to um and he had he could at, at that point in his career could choose whatever he wanted to do and he, he came back and was willing to do it with the, the same director and uh, same stars so almost the same villain i guess but um, yeah pretty much i mean i think there was something to, also because harlem nights he directed and paramount probably said look we'll let you do your passion project here and if you do us another 48 hours it, so that that would have been a two for one it, it could be but you know at the time uh he pretty much did everything for paramount i mean you know, 48 Hours, Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, Best Defense, uh, Golden Child, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Coming to America, Harlem Nights, and another 48 Hours, which I think almost summarizes his entire film career from 1982 to 1990, all our Paramount Pictures releases. So oh, Boomerang is too. Boomerang is early night. Yeah, Boomerang's yeah, a couple. After that, he went over to like Bonavista, which was a Disney um, company. Yeah, with, with uh, I think the last one that I recall with him with Paramount was Vampire in Brooklyn, and then it was he went for Distinguished Gentleman is when he went over to when I think Hollywood Pictures. I think this is what that one was under, but still right. Disney, uh, the Disney company and. And then he got over to Universal for 
Dr. Doolittle and the Nutty Professor, and he and obviously made a series of films for them them there. But uh, he, you know, I don't recall him making any Paramount pictures. I'm sure he has, but uh, since then, but he was like exclusive to Paramount uh, up until that point in time. So uh, they, they were well in the business together. I mean, the famous story is Paramount in the like 1985 1986 is they had two franchises the star trek films and eddie murphy films and eddie murphy was a huge fan of star trek and wanted to be in a star trek movie and they wrote uh, star trek for the voyage home with a eddie murphy character in the film yeah i remember this yeah, yeah. and because he wanted to be in it and they were going to let him do it and I don't remember if it was the people from Star Trek or ultimately Paramount Pictures suddenly got nervous saying, maybe this is too far. Possibly images of Richard Pryor and Superman 3 um, saying, don't cross the streams and keep your uh, you know franchises separate and uh, decided uh, to pull the plug on it and got rid of the kind of slapsticky character that believed in aliens uh, from the film. But that they, they I mean, they had an intention of doing that at one point in time. Sadly, and I was hoping it would be deleted from my mind, but Norbert, <laughs> I have a feeling, was distributed by Paramount Pictures. I don't remember. I wanted to say that was Universal, but I could be wrong. I hate to even think about Norbert anymore. Yeah, the film that killed his Oscar chances. That's what I will always <laughs> remember that as. So. <laughs> It's really, he's an actor, and I don't want to go over the ground we went in through with Norbert, but he's one of not, you know, a lot of people, actors go through highs and lows, but this guy has gone through some mega, mega highs yep. and some ultimate lows, just up and down like a roller coaster on a constant basis, you know. Some actors, when they get down, they don't come back unless it's like John Travolta, who's given sort of a lifeline and he turns up in Pulp Fiction and then all of a sudden his career is back on track. So Eddie Murphy has never really gone away, but the up and down parallel of the career fascinates me, I've got to say, uh, as a film critic, because there are some shockers, but there's some really movies there that a lot of people don't know that are actually okay. But I wonder if a lot of that up and down has a lot to do with the almighty dollar in Eddie's mind, because that's there's, true. there's a lot to be said for somebody that's taking roles because they're interesting and another one to take roles because it's lucrative. Lucrative. And if you have the talent as an actor or comedian or a singer or all three like Eddie, I mean, he's a powerhouse at everything that he does. And when when he steps on on stage, you're immediately drawn to him. And even if it's crap, it's going to be some it's got it's an Eddie Murphy piece of crap you know yeah, you know that he's Eddie in Murphy it. movie exactly and so as yeah he's got the pluto and ashes on his on his resume but he's also got the beverly hills cops and and he has the ability to do the beverly hills cop to this day he can still pull that out um i i believe in him it's just you know everybody's waiting for that moment it's just he's you know he's getting older but i still think he can still be the robert redford of of our generation that can continue on into his 70s and 80s and still be fantastic if he starts acting and stops just going for the the, the big bucks well it's possibly not always the money i know he's got a lot of kids and he's currently married to an australian by the way <laughs> uh, Australian girl. But triplets is a good example 
He could have made that. He could have said yes to that years and years and years ago when it was touted. But, you know, it's still gestating in the development stage. Now, maybe it was because of the script, but really, if he was just like a money grab, that's something he could have done years and years and years ago. Oh, yeah, but he's also got Beverly Hills Cop 4 in development. He had a Beverly Hills Cop television series which went the pilot a few years ago and then get, didn't get picked up. Yeah, I've never seen that. I've never seen it either. I've heard about it, but uh, you know, he was he was going to play at most a, a reoccurring role. He wasn't the lead character. It was supposed to be his son, and it was just announced he's going to be doing coming to a, a sequel to Coming to America. And it's like, okay, I don't know if I needed to see that sequel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, I mean, it's it's not necessary for me. And mm-hmm. and even the Beverly Hills Cop, I liked one a lot. I thought two was very stylistic, but not as good. Three was just a horrible mess, and I don't and I don't know if I really need to see a four, you know, twenty five years after three. And but that's it, where that's where you have somebody that is is basically he's at the the company teat over and over again to the point where it's dry and he continues down the same paths he needs somebody like a robert town or somebody to come along that's a, that's an amazing screenwriter that he can share time with for one or two or you know a couple movies that he can start to turn around into a middle-aged amazing actor again and and something special you know something like the 48 hours beverly hills cop type of personality that where he's he's what draws your eye and and it's something that's edgy and and uh, and amazing and something you're not expecting from him like dream girls i mean he he came out of nowhere and oscar nomination he's got the chops he just has to stop you know, going down the same paths that are just worthless at this point. Nobody wants to see a, a 60-year-old Axel Foley. It just isn't funny anymore. I just hope that maybe if Beverly Hills Cop 4 does eventually go ahead, it makes up for Beverly Hills Cop 3 because that was pretty <laughs> pretty bad. And it's a bit like how Crocodile Dundee in, in L.A., if they do a fourth Crocodile Dundee, it better make up for Crocodile Dundee 3. <laughs> It seriously was pretty bad, and I love love Beverly Hills Cop. I remember at the time hanging for that movie, and it was going to be directed. Well, it was it was directed by John Landis, who directed him in you know Coming to America, and uh, it just it was a big letdown. So, if four ever does happen, I mean, no, no one's really hanging out for it. I understand that, but it'll be like a, a, the new Top Gun that comes out, and there'll be still a bit of reminiscing from people in our era. I would say more than most generations but and he's acting you're right about dream girls but there's another one that got overlooked called mr church and i brought that up maybe on norbert but that was a movie that no one saw it was hardly released but his performance in that as a piano player was was pretty good too yeah but the thing about nostalgia is if i if beverly hills cop 4 comes out the people like me and and you that are going to be going to the theaters will see it once in the theater see it that it's crap and it's not worth watching again because mm, i loved yeah. i loved axel foley 1 i don't like axel foley 4 and you know you're going to get those opening weekend receipts and then he's going to tank because the new generation of the you know 18 to 30 year olds right now are not going to want to see a 60 year old axel foley it's just you're, it, it won't have any legs and he will bury that character rather than let him go off right off into the sunset 
you know, and doing something cool. I mean, I, I I wouldn't mind seeing Beverly Hills Cop four as a different person altogether, with him being a forty eight hours type of character come out of nowhere and completely different name, completely different setting, and boom, this is you know fifty five, sixty year old Eddie Murphy with an edge. I want to see that, and the new generation watchers would probably flock to that kind of a movie. But and a cameo, and a cameo from Nick Nolte. Absolutely. Oh, that would be awesome. But that's a completely different story than than that. So All right. I'm, I'm just thinking out the box. All right. So here here is exactly what I think is wrong with Eddie Murphy's career. Uh, these are what he has listed in production right now. <laughs> Dolomite is my name, which is a uh, biopic drama. With him and Chris Rock and Keegan-Michael Key and Wesley Snipes, which is a story of performer Rudy Ray Moore, uh, and he's playing Rudy Ray Moore, so he's the lead in it, but it's a drama. So what we kind of talked about him, him doing something dramatic, but he has listed, which has been announced coming to the, coming to, coming to, that's the America, uh, that's going into pre-production right now. And triplets is listed as in pre-production, but then he has in development. Once again, an untitled Marion Barry biopic where he'd play Marion Barry, the the uh, the very troubled mayor of Washington, D.C. Uh, it's not listed as drama, but I'm only assuming so. And then he's got Beverly Hills Cop 4 and an untitled Grumpy Old Men remake project. Oh, oh, why would you touch that? <laughs> it's everything I just said. Yeah, he's coming down the same paths. He's making very few changes. And un- unless a Marion Barry biopic does something like Vice, where they try to take it down a comedy angle using you know sharp language and sharp sharp images. That's the only chance that would have in making any money uh, or a career revival. It, this is just the same old, same old. Yeah, well, they haven't announced another Shrek, so that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, but I don't consider him the strength of Shrek. That's a Mike Myers project. He's a supporting character in that, a strong supporting character. But and it's voice work. You know, it's you know it, he also did voice in Mulan, which wasn't bad, but it was. You know, it's 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 still it's still a lot of kid fare, and I, I like I like my Eddie Murphy a little dirty, I guess. Yep. <laughs> so. Yeah, he, he's actually good in Milan. Um, that is one of my top Disney movies. But it's a reason why you don't see Cameron Diaz, Mike Myers, and you know Eddie Murphy as much on the screen as you think you might, because they they from Shrek Two. They're they're just getting royalties. So all the rides, all the merchandise, all the other Shrek mini cartoons, the short ones, they're still getting royalties. So yeah, even though he's just the donkey, he's probably still making a cash load of money. Oh, without a doubt that those things will play on in perpetuity for kids for generations and generations. Anyways, before we get too far astray, we were here to talk about 48 hours. (laughs) Uh, Shane, you're on the podcast, so we have to talk music. Uh, What did you think about the music in the film? Uh, James Horner is a popular, popular composer and has done so many great themes. Now, when this one started in the Chain Gang, again, like I said, I'd recorded this back in the day on an old cassette. I don't have it anymore, unfortunately. But uh, that, that heavy saxophone that just continually played so much through the movie was very irritating, very 80s and very irritating. Uh, I think some of the music and the composing of the um, solid sounds that were on during 
especially the bus shootout during some of the action scenes were quite good. Uh, but very similar to uh, Lethal Weapon in a way, yeah. too. So mm-hmm. the, the saxophone. Yeah. The music just reminded me of the same. Um, but, yeah, not, not great, especially the saxophone, but not bad either. It had its moments. I like the kettle drums. They use, like, the Jamaican kettle drums that they played a lot of the times whenever – Whenever the bad guy would show up, yeah, um, yeah they had their own things, really. <clears throat> they, they really did, yeah. No, I, I actually liked the music. Uh, I thought it was fitting for 1982 when it came out, and I don't think it it, it was dated. You know, it's dated today, but I, I, I'd listen to this again. I think it was kind of fun. So it's not a soundtrack that I go out and buy, but yeah, I, I thought that it, it didn't date the movie specifically to 1982 other than you know maybe the saxes but that's about it otherwise what was good was went the through band. the 80s yeah exactly and the bands in Froman's and torchies were mm. actually pretty good they were yeah. decent bands and yeah. walter hill has a knack of that you go through some of his other movies he's got an ear for bands and music like that are in clubs or pubs or something playing live <laughs> Uh, of course, Streets of Fire. We yeah, I mean, well, you, but... you have the dancers up on stage with yeah, them too. The setup of that whole those totally whole Streets of Fire. Yeah, it was a ripoff of Forty Eight Hours, his own movie. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I think it's great. I love Walter Hill's stuff, but uh, but yeah, it's a ripoff. Uh, you know, I, I really like obviously the Bus Boys. Uh, they they the mm-hmm. the boys are back in town were used in this film. I, I think also in the closing credits. And then uh, Eddie Murphy used it for his uh, Eddie Murphy delirious stand-up comedy video. In, or oh, rap. he did too. I forgot about that. Yeah, he uh, had the band tour with him. Uh, that was his best stand-up video, by the way. Yes, it is. Raw is raw. Is, nothing like that. Yeah. No. Uh, which also raw's okay, but yeah, you're right. Delirious, just okay. but raw yeah. is okay. Yeah, Raw, also a Paramount release in the 80s. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, they... And they, Delirious? Was Delirious Paramount? De- Delirious that was, was a really popular VHS in my video shop. Yeah, it was a, and, um, it was a Paramount release, but it was, re- it was an HBO show. So, uh, and he was only 20 when he did that, right? That was before 48 Hours, yes. wasn't it? Uh, well, I think 48 Hours, had because that's where he met the bus boys. And okay. he asked them to tour when he did that um, stand-up tour. And I think, so he'd filmed 48 Hours, then made Delirious. And I think that came out, then 48 Hours. Because okay. so. that soundtrack for Delirious, I had that tape, like you did, Shane, where you listened to it over and over. That Delirious was in my car all the time, <laughs> cranked. Uh, it actually got my friend in trouble with the car thing uh, one day with, with a, a guy that pulled up right next to him. And the car sequence went off with the guy next to him. So, you know, it, it very raunchy, but hilarious. Best, best stand up ever. But that's also the Eddie that I love is he's that raunchy, edgy, you know, angry. Classic, guy. classic Eddie Murphy, that red exactly. uh, suit that he had on that leather suit. And yeah, that this was really the period I loved him as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I like the Bus Boys. I like that song. I think they—that's uh, uh, what they used in the trailer for another forty-eight hours as well. I think they used that song again, so it's kind of the, the song for forty-eight hours. But uh, the the orchestration by Horner, I, the, it very is very much reminiscent of the Lethal Weapon 
uh, Michael Kamen soundtrack uh, of, of, for all four films. There's heavy on the saxophone. Um, I do like the kettle drums as well. I, I, it doesn't bother me as much, but it does make it has a distinct flavor of '80s soundtrack to me. Yeah, yeah, running scared. Yeah. Well, you talked uh, about uh, yeah. Eastwood and and Richard Pryor, and what I was thinking because Richard Pryor. I've, Richard Pryor was a different generation for me. I guess he was the generation before me. I never really liked him as much in movies. And I think Eddie has that. He's an edgier Richard Pryor. And I think that's why the studios struggled with him. Maybe that's why that could be why he had a hard time on, on set was because he wasn't as funny uh, in 48 hours as he is in a stand up and on Saturday Night Live. And Richard Pryor was the same kind of way. But Richard Pryor had softened himself by that time. You know, obviously, he took the toy the same year. So I think that the studio didn't understand that Eddie Murphy has that it factor that was missing from from a character. And when you throw a comedian into a movie back in 1982, you were expecting you know, basically Billy Crystal or Robin Williams to come out of that era. Right. And, and instead you got an actor that was playing a drama with a, with that had a really funny wit to him that was coming back so fast, but he was hard edged and mean and, you know, black and, you know, take me as I am or else type of thing. And he was awesome that way. And I think that's where the studio didn't understand what they had. And that's probably why he had a, a struggle, or at least I would think that maybe why he struggled a bit on set. I've got a, a few bullet points I wanted to bring up, especially about some of the other actors in it. Uh, doesn't Annette O'Till look good in this? Oh, she, she was really pretty in this. And Brian James, obviously from Blade Runner, same year. He was in this, which was in which not a big role, but it was one of his fellow detectives. And Denise Crosby was one of the girls above the jewelry shop in Chinatown. And whenever Denise Crosby comes into a movie, I always remember Skin Deep, just one of the greats. <laughs> <laughs> I love that she's a, she was the one with the baseball bat. Yep. Yes. Uh, and the police station was just full of cliches. You had hookers, drunks slobs and people snoozing going to sleep you had scruffy detectives typewriters and phones ringing and a screaming police chief <laughs> it was all there it was great <laughs> and another thing i noticed was when they had that big shootout in the lobby that first when they were going to go and get gans and we had uh, nick nolte's character staying in the lobby in the hotel None of the cops had radios, and no one else walked into the hotel, in or out. And when they were shooting, no one came out. Or, you know, sometimes you see people scream, sort of opening the doors, sticking their head out and going back in. You never saw any of that. It was like, it was like the place was empty except for them. It was checkout time. Must have been. And there's a scene near the start where they, um, Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte are going down into the car park downstairs, and they turn left, and there's a sign on the, on the wall that said, Fallout Shelter, with an arrow <laughs> And I'm thinking, well, the Cold War was still on. Maybe that was a real picture, like a real car park mm -hmm. that they were in. thought that was interesting. Uh, and the bus shootout, which I mentioned briefly before, when it, the music, that was a really well-staged scene that was definitely practical because the bus and the car kept smacking into each other. They were shooting. You could see the actors' faces. It wasn't stunt doubles most of the time, I don't think. I just thought that was 
really they good still on that. couldn't hit the broadside of a barn from five well, they, and they couldn't they didn't shoot a shot one there was two shooting at one they should have shot the tires out uh, and last but not least i've never done this until watching it again i looked up that space kid cartoon that mm-hmm. um james remar gans was watching at the start yeah he was staring at it uh, it's a real cartoon i never mm-hmm. knew that a paramount picture 60s cartoon I, i'd never seen it before but i always remembered it um you know, on in forty eight hours, uh, and Candy at Froman's, of course, is from Miami Vice, which is one of the great shows. Is that where she was from? I'd seen her face somewhere. Yeah, she's in a lot of movies too. But uh, she's my, adorable. Being a big fan of Miami Vice, that was yeah. Trudy. You made me think of something that I wanted to say. Talking about Annette O'Toole, I did read where there is like a longer version of the film uh, that uh, I cut. Uh, that her story was a little bit beefed up and included nude scenes, which I always ever like when I watch it and I said, I swear there was a nude scene in this film, but it's not her. It's some of the crossing Delane or I'm sorry, uh, Cross my heart. Well, I don't. If, I don't if, need if wanna, to look. You, <laughs> oh, I just say if you want. Oh, and then oh you go. okay, perv, that you pull that out. Is, is it the thirteen? She was gorgeous in this, Patrick. But uh, I don't uh, ever remember her being nude. But that's that last scene where she hangs up and she's working in the bar. She's she's on fire there when she's like in her work uniform. Yeah, but she's I always think of billing. Yeah, I always think of her having a bigger role because when she has yeah. to star billing and she's a net O'Toole. But this, I kept wondering. I don't know why I think she has a bigger role in this film because she's not really part of the story. I mean, she is she is really just window dressing for giving some background on Kate's. So that's. But she, you know, we talked about that a month or two ago on Hoosiers uh, with the Barbara Hershey character. Is yeah. I think there's a lot to do with sometimes you get some name actresses, and in that day, Annette O'Toole was a pretty name actress. After you know the Robbie Benson one, one on one stuff like that, she was she was known, and she was in like three scenes in this movie in 48 hours when she gets third billing. So she had to have been in a bunch that was chopped. And I'm sad because I, it would have been nice to see her and and Nick Nolte acting. That, the phone call alone was worth the fact that those two were at each other would have been worth it. You know, Nick <laughs> Nolte at anybody was fun. So that would have been a great scene. I wish they could do a director's cut. And yeah, I've never heard of one being brought out, although Walter Hill has done that. Come on, on Walter, you're movies. out there still alive, man. Bring it together. Yeah, he's done it on a few of his other movies. He made a, a movie with Nick Nolte called Extreme Prejudice, which was pretty good too, a Western, like a modern Western. I remember – I haven't seen it for a long time, but I remember really liking it. And you brought up other actors in the film. Jonathan Banks uh, played one of the detectives yeah. shot in the oh, hotel yeah. room. I love him. He's um, good. Goes on to play the villain in Beverly Hills Cop a couple of years later against Eddie Murphy. Uh, and uh, that entire hotel room s- uh, sequence, I, I remember watching it because I didn't see this in the theaters. I saw it on video. And just like the gunshots seemed to be explosions. The sound was so yeah. prominent. And when I watched that film, it just... It had the effect, and I remember my dad at the time when I watched it with him saying something about, "Oh, it's a forty-four Magnum. It's a you know, it's a big loud gun." And mm-hmm. um, but it was so so powerful sounding that whole shootout in the in the hotel towards the beginning of the film that I thought it was really extremely well done, and the uh, tense nature of it of what was going on was uh, it was it, it really made you tense watching it of uh, how how it was playing out. 
Well, we didn't mention James Remar enough in this because I thought he was a fantastic yeah. bad guy. A solid and, villain. Oh, yeah. And I, I like him in a lot of movies, and he makes the perfect bad guy. But I guess he, he didn't sleep for his role. Uh, or, or before he was on screen because he, he wanted to have that grizzled look to him. He's great. And I, I think that he, I've seen him in a lots of other movies and obviously plays a lot of the same characters, but he was a perfect bad guy. He's one of those guys that was, you did not know what he was going to be. I mean, he's killing his own friends. So you just don't know. You can't trust him at any time. And he was a danger anytime he stepped on screen. So that was a, he was a good bad guy. And David Patrick Kelly, I just thought of him too, <laughs> who was in, in The Warriors, and he's been in a, like a several Walter Walter Hill. movies. <laughs> Commando, Twin yeah. Peaks, he's got a prominent role in Twin Peaks. Dreamscape. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, remember I kill you last? I lied. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a great cast, and honestly, if Porky's and Animal House is like the mother of tits and bum sex comedies of the 80s, this has got to be one of the first uh, you know, buddy cop movies. To, to set the ball rolling. Well, I mean, there's probably ones before this, obviously, what? but this is one that was a huge hit, so a it, lot of copycats. A lot of people identify this as the first buddy cop film, which is funny because they're not both, they're not really buddies and they're not both no. cops. <laughs> but yeah. the, the framework of the two guys being friends and take, you know, taking on crime in some sort of capacity, I, I think it's weird how, I don't know, at the end of the film, if you really would believe these two guys would be friends after everything they've gone through and everything that Nick Nolte says to him in that time frame. I mean, no, but they, they respected one another. And I think that's the part that the movie – I don't think they ever would have ended up being you know beer buddies. I think they would have ended up where if they would have met on the street again, they would have known what the other was and they would have shook hands and, and parted the same way. There, there never would have been the the buddy buddy. I, that's why I think forty another forty eight hours kind of screwed the pooch with that. Um, I don't. It, it did in a way, yeah. And well, I mean, they tried to relive it, and it was yeah. wasn't half the movie. I mean, it's still entertaining and not a bad right. a crime action film, but it doesn't hold a feather to the original. Yeah, it, I mean, it it tries too hard to be suspenseful. As who's the real? Uh, right. Bad guy. I can't remember what if it was. I keep want to say the Sandman, but it's not. It wasn't. The, well, there's Gans's brother turns up in in um, it's another four eight hours. Yeah, it's Gans's brother, but it's also Kehoe. Uh, Brian James is the ultimate bad guy. Spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen 1990s. Another forty eight hours. <laughs> that uh, is the drug dealer that they stole the five hundred thousand dollars from before this film. That. It, doesn't even make sense with the way he, he acted in the first one. He would have been after Eddie the whole time or or he would have been involved somehow. Or, not, well, yes. OK, we could point out all of that. But the, the whole thing is that somebody first of all, starting off with that takes place eight years later and Eddie Murphy's right. still in prison and they come up with yeah, some, I never got, I never got that. Either. They, they, well, they have some bullshit explanation of where he got busted for something or framed for something yeah, and, he, got, and right. he had to stay. And, but there he's, people are trying to kill him because he can attend. And it's not the Sandman. It's, he's, it's some, some lame ass damn name for the, the ultimate bad guy because he's the one guy that knows what he looks like. And you get the big reveal in the, the last shootout of the film when he says, no, that's the Sandman or whatever that points to him. And because uh, uh, Jack thinks it's someone else and it's not. And it turns out to be his friend from the first film. So great. <laughs> well, 
I, I watched it, um, but honestly, I probably didn't take too much attention to it because I was drifting. It, it does not keep your attention like the first one did. The jokes aren't the same. The action's really not the same. And there's, there's too much happening for it to be uh, well executed when yeah. it comes to, to the action scenes. It's just their explosions for the sake of it. And it could be Iceman rather than Sandman. Iceman, there you go. Yeah, but again, I just didn't uh, sort of take as much notice of it as I did the original watching it again. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's wrap it up. Uh, does this film stand the test of time? Although I think we've already telegraphed our punch. Uh, Bobby? Yes, this movie was the is is one of the framework for buddy cop or buddy uh, crime fighting duos. I think this is a great movie. I think it is worth watching again and again and again just for the two stars but so many good bit players behind them that make this even better. But yeah, this is a great movie. Uh, It's dated by the clothes and the, the music but it's well worth watching specifically just to watch the, the chemistry between the two stars and the racism. So, Don't forget the racism. <laughs> well, yeah, you gotta, you, you kind of have to put cotton in your ears through some of it because it really is over the top, but for the day, that's pretty much, it was the start of the finish of racism where it was so blatant in your face. Uh, you, you could not do that today. But yeah, great movie. I think it's definitely worth watching again today. Um, and yeah, stands test of time. Shane? Yeah, exactly. Other than the problems, the huge problems I've got with the racism in this and the, in the screenplay uh, and the actions of the characters. Overall, man, I think this is a bloody good movie that does stand the test of time. It is just top-notch filmmaking um, on the streets, practical effects, Good, you know, the story's not majorly good, but it's enough to hold your attention and you care about the characters. So I, I did wonder why they didn't put an APB out on Gantz after the prison break, because it was only like two people chasing after him. And one <laughs> of them was a convict. Honestly, they, I think they would have had more, more than just that, you know, those two after him. But those things aside, the cliches and that aside, great movie, highly recommend it. And, um, yeah, I've only got it on DVD. I should upgrade to Blu-ray. You should. And turn up the sound. Yeah. Yeah. Got to hear those guns go off. Uh, Oh, I'll make it three for three. I absolutely do think it stands the test of time. Much like Shane, I am bothered by like the, the racist, uh, statements that Cates is making towards the Reggie Hammond character throughout the first three quarters of the film. I mean, he, explain, <laughs> he explains it in one at, at the, uh, the Fillmore bar later on uh, saying, Hey, I just gotta, I gotta keep you down. Um, and, and, and I thought Eddie Murphy's character's retort is that doesn't explain it all, Jack <laughs> <You know? laughs> or the captain. Yeah. Or, or yeah, even the, uh, the captain, another black uh, uh, character <laughs> with the racist statements. But the, the thing is, is that what bothers me is that you didn't have to write it that way. You, you had to, you had, to, you has to keep the character down. I understand the philosophy of that is, you know, you want to keep control, especially of a conflict that's convicts in your custody but you could call him an asshole just as much and have be just as effective uh, rather than call him as shane said a watermelon or something like that mm-hmm. it just it just yeah. it, it, oh, yeah. 
and I agree with you. It is a different era. It's just weird to think of that in my lifetime that it, we, yeah. we've uh, it's changed so much that you would never see that in a no. film, a, a Hollywood mainstream film today that wasn't directly dealing with a, a, a race issue uh, or to portray a character as racist. I mean, uh, Jack is supposed to be one of the two heroes. So it's well, even Shane Black's movie, The Nice Guys, that is throwing you back to the 1970s. It was only done a couple of years ago that can't have even if you're throwing them back into that time frame you still can't use that kind of language today correct, correct. it just isn't possible in today's hollywood no uh, the uh, political correctness you know right. has come uh, come so far as that audiences are turned off by that in a film unless you're dealing with something directly involving race and the, the characters that are using those statements are usually pre- being portrayed as villainous or racist characters. Jack's not supposed to be a racist. He's supposed to be the hero, but he's, I mean, he's throwing those r- racial epitaphs at, you know, Reggie Hammond constantly. Um, you know, as I said, through about three quarters of the film until they have this kind of mending of the fence slightly later on. But It's like the, the Clint Eastwood movie, The Mule, that recently came out. It got um, lambasted for uh, racism, but that's the character. And it was also set 20-odd um, years ago and based mm-hmm. on a true story. So they did – I'm sure they lightened it down a bit, but there were still some racist incidences and, and comments in that film. And it was only made in 2018. You go, Clint Eastwood's – you know, you think of Heartbreak Ridge – and some of the Dirty <laughs> Harry movies, some of the yeah. things he says, you yeah. know, like, I mean, that was the era. That was the time. And it wasn't, you know, this, there was lots and lots of movies that just would not fly today. And The Rookie, there's, there's a buddy cop movie. Some of the things that get said in that, too, and there's two, they're two white cops. So it's pretty relevant in so many films. But this one really did widen my eyes because it had been so long since I'd seen it. Yeah. All right, that does it for this week's review of 48 Hours. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little bi-weekly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie on either Facebook or Twitter. You can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and Blu-ray releases, and information on upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. And if you've enjoyed yourselves and you download us off either iTunes or Stitcher, make sure to rate our podcast on either one of those two platforms. And if you have a chance, write a short review of the podcast. Of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Till next time, I'm Patrick. I'm Bobby. I'm Shane. And we got to get out of here right now. And you guys are invited. is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review Fireworks is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentsToSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. 